everybody. Welcome to the Edvolution Podcast, where we question what makes our life truly ours. I'm Shereen Jaffer, and I'm very excited to introduce you to some incredible people with fascinating stories. I have Valine Maharo with me. She and I were introduced through a mutual friend of ours, Kosser, giving her a shout out. Um, Valine has been working in equity, diversity, inclusion, preventing sexual harassment uh, for the past few years. And it's been so powerful following their work and seeing everything that they've been doing, especially with uh, what we've got going on in our current climate. So Valine, thank you so much for being here. And I'm excited to hear about your story. Thanks so much, Shireen. I really appreciate being on the podcast today. I think um, I'm really present and I know you are too, like you said, to the current climate and how urgent these conversations are around equity, inclusion, and racial justice and harassment prevention, because what we're witnessing right now is the revolution happening in real time. And I'm so happy to be a part of it and really feel grounded in my purpose in supporting these conversations going forward for all people, but especially for non-Black folks of color. Yeah, absolutely. I think conversations are crucial. Um, Knowing how to act uh, and what the opportunities are for us to become allies is absolutely necessary. So very happy uh, to be hearing from you and and learning from you and all of the work you're doing. Uh, So, you know, usually everyone I know that is in the space and talking about inclusion and equity, they're excited about it and they're passionate about it and they get involved with it due to some personal inspiration or some personal experience. So I really want to start, um, you know, I want to learn a little bit more about your background, uh, you know, how you grew up, where you grew up. Uh, let's, let's start there. Um, tell me a little bit more about your childhood. Ooh, yeah, that is, that is it. You hit the nail on the head. That is my whole life experience is what led me to co-founding shift with Kasser and Natalie, Kasser Mohammed and Natalie Bui. Um, I am Latinx, Chicana, Mexican-American descent and born and raised in the greater Los Angeles area my whole life. And um, I come from a really loud, uh, beautiful Mexican-American, Chicano, Latinx family. And that's really where my work started. Um, My mom, you know, was a part of the Chicano Chicana movement here in Los Angeles and always told us stories about that and always told us about stories of resistance and experiencing racism in her own life. And on the opposite spectrum, my father um, was a retired LAPD officer and there was a constant uh, debate and tension in our home because of their two very different ideological differences. And, um, those are my training grounds. That's where I learned about why it's important to stand up for folks that look like me, but also folks that don't look like me. Um, that's where I learned uh, how deeply rooted uh, anti-Blackness is in all communities, and especially in my community. That's where I learned about uh, how I needed to stand up for myself as a, as a little young woman, um, kind of learning to navigate. And all of that was in the backdrop, I should say, <laughs> of my parents, both, you know, coming up, uh, working class, um, moved us into a neighborhood that they thought was going to help us 
move forward and progress, and I put progress in, in quotations, into white suburbia. And having a really uh, liberal, outspoken mother and a big, loud Mexican family in the middle of white suburbia was uh, completely shaped the way I confronted so many of these systems of oppression. And so that really is the backdrop of my life. And that has really motivated me for the entirety of my life, going to always being in mostly white spaces, always being kind of the token person of color in white spaces and knowing how to code switch and navigate my way, my way through that to um, be able to survive in those spaces, but also really like feeling the weight of, of having to do that. You know, my sisters like to joke about, you know, where I'm at and how none of it is a coincidence and tell me, you know, my first protest was in a a stroller, which is true. And, you know, my mom, my mom brought us up in that kind of way of going to protests, of, of fighting for what you believe in. And that just translated through my whole life. I was always involved in those types of organizations, always organizing of work. Also, I have to shout out a huge part of my anti-racist work has been shaped and um, really grown and blossomed through the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond and their Undoing Racism training. I highly, highly, highly recommend that training for anyone who wants to get very real with themselves and very real about the context that we're living in in the United States. Uh, I love that. And thank you so much for sharing that entire background. And I'm, you know, when you said you've got your Chicana mom and you've got your LAPD dad. And I'm, I can't even imagine those discussions at the dinner table. Um, and I want to, I want to dig a little deeper into also moving into a white suburbia. Um, I had something similar happen to me, which, you know, we can go into a little bit later, but talk to us, you know, growing up um, and being in white suburbia and coming from this big, loud Mexican family what can you share some stories or some experiences where you really were aware of the color of your skin? Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so many. And I I also think I'm the youngest of five I should name also witnessing and hearing about my siblings experiences. Oh, I think I remember one day trying to invite, uh, a girl from school, I think I was in first or kindergarten, over for dinner at my house because my mom was making enchiladas. And I was like so excited to share because my mom's enchiladas are like one of my favorite dishes. And she goes, ew, what's that? <laughs> and I had this this moment of of being like really shook as like a little, you know, five or six year old and not understanding why that was ill to someone else. Um, but also, you know, registered all the stories that I had heard. And I was very present, like race conversations were very explicit in my house. My mom never tried to shelter us from that. And I think it's really good because we were confronted with it anyways, in the context we're living. But that's like a a really clear moment that I've never forgotten um, living there. I mean, we got called everything from beaners. I mean, in high school, I remember girls coming up to me and commenting on my tan <laughs> which is wow. so funny because I was like this isn't a tan y'all this is this isn't a skin color <laughs> um and uh you 
know, but I like played with it and I leaned into it and I like, you know, would mess with them. Like I'm snarky and, you know, being called exotic um, and, you know, and, and also like responding to that and being defined in that. I remember distinctly in high school, I went to super bougie, uh, all girls Catholic private high school. And I remember every single de Mayo, they'd always be like, Belene, it's like your, your people's independence day. And I would get so annoyed because it wasn't, it's not, it's an important date, but it's not. And so on, uh, September, which is, uh, is independence day, which is September 16th, I would intentionally like pin the Mexican flag on my backpack so that people would like know, uh, and stop annoying me. And I could give a little history lesson. Um, so, you know, there's so many experiences of, things that I experienced and I witnessed my, my family experience. Um, and, and then there's, you know, there's the more explicit things and then there's the more subtle things that, that are harder to name, you know, the looks, the stares, the keeping quiets or the, the, oh, interesting, you know, uh, that speak loud, right. That just let you know that you're different and you don't belong. So as much as, mm-hmm. as my parents tried, uh, it was very, they never, they, as in the community we lived in, never let us forget who we were. Yeah. So th- again, thank you for sharing that. I, so you had mentioned, you know, your parents moved you for progress. <laughs> um, cool. uh, tell me why you wanted to put those in quotation marks. Um, yeah. Tell me more there. Yeah. And I, I also recognize that's not fair. And I've had these conversations with my parents too, because I really recognize that they're, they were just doing their best and that that is the, you know, the American dream and the American narrative um, is to, you know, move into uh, these neighborhoods that are more affluent, that tend to have more white people sometimes. Right. Um, and I, I appreciated that because it made me who I was. And I appreciate the hard work that they were doing, because like I said, they were doing their best and what they thought was right. Um, And I also recognize what we um, what we let go of in the process of of of, you know, progress of moving to an affluent affluent area of, um, you know, whether that's making more money or putting us in, quote unquote, better schools. and, the, and there's, you know, there's multiple truths there. Yes, we did get a really good education. Yes, we did learn how to articulate ourselves in mostly white settings. And I'm grateful for all of that. And I'm also present to that we all um, didn't get to learn Spanish because my dad didn't want us growing up with accents. Um, so we all had to collectively go relearn Spanish for ourselves later in life, whether that was traveling or, or whatnot. Um, things, things were with the way we also internalized. I think I I feel really grateful for always having a sharp lens at a little age or yeah, when I was younger, because I saw what was happening and I knew it was wrong. It was happening to my siblings. And so I, I knew that I had to be proud about being Mexican. I knew that I had to be proud of my brown skin. I knew that and I don't think my siblings were afforded, especially the older ones were afforded that because they were just kind of thrown in with the wolves. Um, and so I say progress because I want to hold the tension of recognizing that um, it did support us in the like, in the in the kind of more material way and, and the system of capitalism for us to progress, 
but I also recognize in the ways that we were also impacted um, that, you know, also made us resilient, but I hold it all. It's complex. Yeah, absolutely. It is complex. I think there's a lot of dualities in place. I think there's a lot of dissonance in place. Um, and that's just because it's not, it's not simple. <laughs> it is absolutely complex. You know, there's, um, um, there's a lot right now, obviously happening with police versus us, right? The police versus us, the law enforcement versus us. And you've grown up with a mom who took you out to every protest. <laughs> and then you grew up with an LAPD dad. So how are you feeling right now with that uh, conflict taking place? Yeah, for sure. I should also say they're divorced. Um, so that tension wow. value, I mean, they divorced when I was super young. It's not, you know, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I hear that. I hear that. And I feel really fortunate to be able to also think about, because I talked to my dad too about, you know, and he's, about being a police officer and um, I'm going to, I'm going to get a little, I'm going to, I'm going to just talk about something real quick. So I, my father's not the only police officer in my family. I have a couple, um, but he is obviously the most present in that. Um, But I recognize the history of, of police officers in this country and the impact that they've had and the intentionality of specifically having people of color be police officers. Um, So a police officer, the role and the job actually came from uh, a role and job that was on slave plantations called the overseer. And the overseer's job was strictly to oversee the enslaved peoples, to police them, to report them, to oftentimes murder them if they stepped out of line. And when slavery was abolished, that job turned into so many different things. It also should be noted that that job um, was also specifically um, and intentionally and strategically forced upon enslaved peoples to also take on. So a lot of overseers were also enslaved peoples because this system that was created of of capitalism or white supremacy or racism or however you want to name it, recognized that creating divide within community, because they'd already created the divide between white and black, but creating even more of a divide in that it was more powerful than and sustainable to maintain this power dynamic. And so, and that job transformed and translated. If you say, you know, overseer 10 times fast, you'll eventually start saying officer. And that is, that is the history and the trajectory of the police officer. And while I recognize, and I think, and it makes me really sad when I think about specifically the Latinx community in their role in the police department. And I have a lot of family there. Um, I think about how that is their step that they, that they think they, that they made a choice to make in order for progress. And I, and I agree, or I think about that in my father and like my father was the oldest of nine people, nine, nine kids. They grew up, you know, he, migrated to the U.S. without papers, got deported once or twice. I can't even remember. Um, So he really had to fully commit and believe in this idea of the American dream. And his options were limited. 
and the police station was right around the corner from his house. And that, that's, that was his, the way he saw his way out. Um, so I, I recognize that choice and I understand his, his need to make that choice. And, um, and then when you get indoctrinated into that system, you get indoctrinated into a value set that has the remnants and the history of that overseer-like title, right? That overseer-type role. I want to believe that police officers can be community-oriented and work within community, but I will be super honest, having lived with police, a police officer, having been raised around a lot of police officers, the mentality that is, you are indoctrinated with um, does not allow for humanity and it does not allow for a community care center framework that really is what we need right now for our community. And so what I feel like is I feel like there needs to be, I mean, I think we need to completely revamp the criminal justice system, not just, not just cops, because then it's labor union tra- uh, contracts. It is, uh, the way funding is, you know, it's so many other things. I think it's easy to just like hone in on on cops because it's the most direct and like person to person impact. And I get that. And that's real. But there is a lot of things that we need to be addressing around that. Um, so I'm scared for, you know, the real humans that are having to create violence and in turn put themselves in violent situations and have to react without humanity. I'm scared for their humanity and their lives. And I also recognize that that that's a choice. It's not a choice to be black, right? It's not a choice to be a person of color, but it's a choice to take on a job to some degree. And so I feel conflicted, but I also recognize that this is the necessary, this uprising is necessary for our, our humanity. Well, that, um, it's it's so interesting because one I didn't even realize where officer came from so thank you for educating us that that is interesting okay. I I want to go back to a comment you had made earlier you had talked about the anti-blackness in your community um, tell me a little bit about how that manifested in experiences you had growing up yeah I mean I am a darker skinned like child out of all my siblings. And I'm honestly like, you know, that's so subjective, but within my family context, uh, that's, I was, I was always known as like the darker skin child. Um, you know, they'd make fun of me. I mean, it was all in love and fun, you know, whatever. And I bring it up now. They're like, Oh my God, you're so sensitive. And I didn't internalize it, but I'm like, but that, that could be internalized and that could have messed me up around, you know, saying I was adopted or like, you know, pretending that, you know, I wasn't related or whatever, just like silly sibling stuff that, you know, they do to be mean to their younger siblings, but also just like recognizing the way our Latinx community uses words to describe black people, to describe darker skin family members versus lighter skin family members, the way that's valued, the way they're treated. Um, I think the way that we have um, strategically been pinned against each other, specifically the Latinx and the Black community, because we are oftentimes the two communities that are most impacted by these systems. And so, of course, no one wants to be like the other, but specifically the Latinx community, we're constantly pushing ourselves away, even though so much of our our history and our roots are rooted in the uh, African diaspora. 
Um, but we're constantly trying to push away ourselves from blackness and approximate ourselves to whiteness. That pendulum is like so real because whiteness um, is associated with success and capital and progress in quotations. And so I get it. I get it. Um, but now uh, we are in a moment where we're really starting to confront that and address that in a real way. But, you know, anti-Blackness shows up in colorism. It shows up in words. It shows up in the ways we treat people. It shows up in the ways we are the countries where we come from strategically leave out the history of Afro-Latinos within our history. Like, I was taught, I wasn't taught that there were Afro-Mexicanos, Afro-Mexicans in Mexico. I never, ever knew about that in my entire life. And I remember um, I would live there for two years after college when I was like, I'm done with the U.S. Um, but I went and lived there with my cousins. And I remember going to visit a specific um place in, in Mexico, um, Veracruz specifically, that had a slave port. And I remember going there and seeing all these Afro-Mexicans and being like, what is going? Like, I was so un, like, I was like, how come no one ever talked to me about this? Like, how come we don't talk about this? Not we as in only my family, but the literal like Mexican country. Like, why don't we talk about this? Um, and and that like literally shows up in in the way that the government operates. I mean, Afro-Mexicanos weren't put on the census. So I, I think they were formally recognized in 2015, but I don't think they actually were put on the census until like this year. It's just it's the erasure that we've also inherited too around Afro-Latino um, folks within all our different you know countries and contexts is, is very real and very present. And that all comes back from the transatlantic slave trade. Like, I know people are like, ah, slavery was so long, but like, was it? (laughs) Like, really, was it in the like trajectory of our country and our history and our economic like capital system? It wasn't. And there are still roots of it that still live in in our legislation and the way we operate today. So yeah, I got, I got, I went real in right now. But yeah, I mean, there's yeah, and there's also so many implications, and again, those second order, third order consequences that we're still living. Absolutely, obviously, we're still living, and yeah, it wasn't in the context of everything. It was not that long ago. I mean, my parents lived. You know, we're still alive. I mean, they were alive in segregation. Like you know, like they. It's it's just, it's wild to me. My mom talks about, they briefly moved up into, um, when she was younger, they briefly moved up into central California and were doing farm working work. Um, but they were in as farm worker laborers, um, asked the Catholic school nearby and they got a scholarship to go to an affluent Catholic school. And she remembers them just the, the her experience there as a young brown girl and like having different water fountains and like I'm like yo this this is not so removed from us and these scent and and maybe they like might be removed in the sense of like there's newer laws or there's more decorum or there's more like politic around it but the sentiments and the value sets and the way it actually manifests and the way we treat people in our day-to-day have not because we haven't actually been honest about it. So right now there's a lot of 
uh, like uncertainty around protests. Um, I think obviously there's a lot of people that are, yes, peaceful protests. I'm there. Awesome. And I think there's a lot of people that are scared. Um, they don't know how to feel about protests. They don't know if, you know, they should like go out and be part of one. Um, so one, I, from personal, I want to understand, you know, growing up with your mom being such a huge inspiration on you when it came to showing up, you know, at these protests, what were, what were those experiences like for you? You know, again, being part of a community where I'm assuming most of your friends or the people you grew up with weren't really being part of those protests. Uh, talk to me on the personal side of things. Yeah, I think like, yeah, like you said, I, that muscle of, of protest um, was given to me at a really young age. And I've, you know, taken that on in my own life um, or my own life trajectory as well. And I, and I recognize people's um, hesitation to engage in that. And I don't judge that. Um, And I also want to honor people's excitement around it too. And want to also urge if there is excitement, if there is energy that you're really being strategic and listening to the folks who are leading it. And in this case, that is a Black Lives Matter movement. There's a lot of people that are just excited to just be out there and not actually following the organized strategy that is being given to us by the leadership of this moment um, and are causing more, you know, problems for the movement. And so really being mindful, if you are going to go protest and do that, making sure you're really um, aligning with the the values of the leadership at hand. Um, But I also, there are so many other ways too, if protest is, is something that doesn't feel accessible to you, there's so many other ways to be a part and be in solidarity with this uprising. Um, I want to call in, I just pulled it up right now so I could look at it. Um, This beautiful uh, image, I encourage folks to look it up, that was created by uh, Deepa Iyer. It is called The Mapping Our Roles in a Social Change Ecosystem. And that recognizing, you know, everyone has their distinct roles. And she, I'll just very briefly kind of like name the offerings that, that she gives. But it's, you know, we have guides. We have weavers, we have experimenters, we have frontline responders, we have visionaries, we have builders, we have the caregivers, the disruptors, which is like, feels very, our disruptors are very loud and taking on a lot of, of the, the meat of this, right, right now. We have the healers, we have the storytellers. And so recognizing that there are so many pathways for us to uplift this moment now too. Um, I think is something that I'll, I'll offer for folks to think about. Um, I, I, I know my sister really, like I, you know, my mom raised us to be like this. My, my sister who has two babies really wanted to go and be out there. And I told her no, because she has two babies and I need her to stay home and take care and raise anti-racist babies. You know, like I need, I need her to like do that. And like, because we can't have, you know, like they need to help. She needs to help create the generation that's going to push us ahead. Um, so like that, you know, that's a role, right? Um, I think right now I'm recognizing, well, I do, I have gone to some of the demonstrations and I think younger Valine would be out there every day and really be in that space. Um, I think I'm recognizing my role 
right now specifically with shift is like okay this is about offering education it's about holding space and processing for people um it's specifically i feel like calling in my latinx community right now into like all right y'all like we're confronted now like what are we gonna do you know um and calling in into our collective liberation um in this movement and so yeah, I feel my heart is with the folks that are demonstrating and out there. And um, I think everyone has a, a purpose and a role in this movement if they, te- if they stand to be, they choose to be in solidarity. Right. And I think that's so important to call out. Everyone's part can be totally different and you can show up in so many different ways. And I think there is this sentiment right now going around where you have to protest or you're not supporting. And uh, Raid and I, we had a conversation um, when the demonstration started and, you know, we said we're not going to go out there and demonstrate in that way, but we're showing our support in so many different ways. Um, similar to you, you know, the work we're doing professionally has so much to do with uh, educating people differently and really helping them understand the things that we have to unlearn as a society, the things that we learned in our education system were so one-dimensional. And there was so much left out about our history that has really influenced how we see the world and how we see race and how we see gender and how we see our institutions. So a lot of the work we're doing is helping, you know, building a product right now and creating conversations and creating spaces where people can uh, start to question and seek answers and be part of these discussions that are informative and thoughtful and safe. Right. And so he and I said, look, like that's what we need to do. And for us, demonstrating doesn't allow us to be the best supporters. And similar to you, like my heart is with them, with every single one of them um, that's, you know, out there, but it's so important to call that out because if you're feeling like, if you're feeling guilty for not being out there, don't because you're wasting time feeling guilty, <laughs> you know, but if that you want to stand in, <laughs> if you want to stand in solidarity, I mean, there's so many ways you can contribute, I promise. Um, and I'm sure Valine at the end of this can even share resources for you to, for you to get involved, but don't feel guilty. That's not going to help you. And it's not going to help anyone around you. Yeah. Thank you for naming that Shireen. That's so important. I think I've been talking to a lot of just friends this week that are, that are confronting this, these conversations in a real way for the first time in their lives. And, you know, guilt is a part of the process, but you ain't helping anybody by staying there, you know, and now is not the moment, you know, like your guilt isn't servicing anyone. And I think, yeah, it's really important to come present to that because I think the guilt comes from like, oh, recognizing how complicit I've been in all of this and then feeling like I can't respond to the direct action. And the reality of it is, is like you said, there's so many ways, like think about like the way our capital is being distributed right now. Like black folks are are asking for reparations, right? Like, okay, where can you put your money into these organizations right now that are doing the work on the ground that are out there that are, you know, creating, you know, all these different programs and spaces to support different communities. And so, like you said, y'all are creating this platform, which I 100% agree is like, we need this, we need to have real conversations about unpacking these things that we we think we've known to be true our whole lives that we're recognizing, like, no, <laughs> these things are only as true as we allowed them to believe to believe they were true. Um, yeah. One of my anti-racist um, mentors talks about this, like in a metaphor of like the monopoly game, 
And she's like, you know, we know, I didn't know this, but she told me, we know that uh, the person that wins Monopoly is the first one, is the person who gets on the board first. And the thing about how this country, the trajectory of this country is that white people have been on the board of Monopoly for centuries or years or, you know, whatever, before folks of color ever got a chance. And so now when this progress that we're talking about, when, when the communities of color start to get on the monopoly board, we internalize all of that too. Like we don't belong there. That's not for us. Um, we don't deserve that. We aren't worthy of that. And that's a lot that internalized racism and prejudice is a lot and unpack too. So I think a lot of that is also been, been informed by that because historically we've been denied of those spaces. So um, I'm sure. So it's 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 a lot of which I feel like is, you know, the thematic of, of your work is like unlearning the unlearning and really like diving deeper into um, what what we lost. And I say we as in, well, everyone, all, all people to, to like in the name of, of progress um, or capitalism. But yeah. I'm sounding hella radical. Oh, I am radical. But anyways, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. No, 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 totally. I think um, I think it's it's important to also note this is a loss for everyone. Um, all people, not just people of color, all people. And Raid and I, Raid's my husband, we were talking about this last night because this week has been, I mean, this week has been rough time stamping at June 4th. So this first week of June has just been, you know, everything... Yeah, it's just been rough. <laughs> um, and I, I was talking to Ray and I was like, I'm so frustrated because I can't believe that our country as a, like as a species, like I can't believe this is where we are. We're so damn behind. Like, I don't know why race and gender and age and all these things, like, first of all, we as you know, humans decided to even put those labels on it in the first place. Right. And then second, we've chosen to take those labels and create such stark differences. Um, and and it's sad. It's sad because there's so much inefficiency in that. Um, we would be so much farther along if we collaborated aggressively and we empowered yeah. and we were open to new ideas. Um so yeah, I think it's a freaking loss for everyone. And, and the problem is we've had these conversations before, you know, and a lot of the conversations I'm a part of now is like, what happened? Like what happened to all these conversations we were having back in the sixties and the like, what, what happened to those conversations? Yeah. Yeah. There's so much that you just said right now that I'm like, Yes, all of it. I think I want to talk through a, a couple of things you said about we're all impacted because I think a, a big part of um, the anti-racist work that I, I've witnessed through the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond is also calling in white folks as well and thinking about before you were white, your people and your lineage were something else. And in thinking about that, it really started to make me think about what all of us, you know, like you're saying, like had like gave up to, to believe, to put belief in this system, belief in this progress. And I think we're in a moment right now where we're starting to be like, oh, yeah, this isn't working. <laughs> like this system, this belief isn't working. And we're starting to question everything. And this is what that uprising is. It's this unlearning and recognizing like, no, these things need to be if not completely abolished 
completely restructured, right? Like we're starting to recognize our criminal justice system is not working. Our financial system is not working. Our healthcare system is not working. Like all these things that we've held to be true and truth and staples and structures of our world are quite literally, you know, dismantling in front of our eyes, or I'd like to believe so. Well, who knows? We'll see how we get out of this. But, um, but yeah, and I think it's cyclical, right? Like you were saying the way that we were having these conversations in the 60s, why why are we coming back to them? And I think because on a fundamental level, we didn't really dismantle these systems. So I really hope that we start to dismantle these systems so we can we can build anew. And I think I also want to call us into, because you're right, it is it is a hard time and there's a lot of violence and people are losing their lives. And all major movements in the world had an uprising. There was an uprising at every, I mean, American independence, like talk about looting. I mean, the Boston Tea Party, y'all, like, like I know these things feel far away, but they're literally the way like this country was built on rebellion. Um, We have the quote unquote, you know, ethics based on rebellion, like, the abolition of slavery wasn't just handed over, you know, people fought for that. There was a full on uprising for that. The, um, you know, the, the death of MLK sparked quote unquote riots or uprising for six days, but then we got the civil rights act. Um, and that's just in our country. There's so many examples globally. I mean, thinking about LGBTQ rights and pride specifically, this beautiful parade that we have now that we get to celebrate peacefully and so much so that even corporations are jumping on the bandwagon or have been for a couple of years. Like that started because a black trans woman and a Latinx trans woman decided that they were going to start an uprising and that black trans woman threw a brick and that, and that it was an uprising, like all these things came from people saying enough is enough. And we are going to risk everything because we need change. We need this to happen. So my hope is that we come out of this really better and restructuring and really thinking about how we're funding um, and prioritizing these systems specifically um, you know, we're being really present to to the de- police department and the criminal justice system, but it's so much more, right? Like we have to unpack the healthcare system and, you know, all the things I said, but yeah. yeah. You know, there's, um... yeah, absolutely. And obviously I appreciate you guys doing the work that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit more about shift and what you've got going on? Sure. So we are a equity, inclusion, and sexual harassment prevention consulting group. So what that means uh, is that we support these hard conversations around race, gender, and equity in workspaces and beyond. And these conversations we then support into actionable steps, and we support organizations, companies, individuals whatever, like whatever industries, um, through ways that they can make the sustainable change towards a more equitable space, specifically around a racial and gender justice lens in actionable steps. So creating long-term plans and long-term programs or long-term campaigns, whatever the needs may be, is something that we respond to. Um, but it all starts with this, this conversation, these workshops, these trainings, 
And from there we grow and we move and we really start to um, get, get our, our tagline is shifting the culture of complacency, right? We're there to, to ignite, to move, to get people to, to get excited about this work and all excited, but also prioritize it and understand the urgency of it. We are, we don't have all the answers and we're definitely not the experts. And we come from, we humbly come from amazing elders and, people and educators that we um, have learned so much from, but we are there to hold a framework and hold people accountable to pushing themselves and their growing edge to do better and to create more equitable space. Yeah, that's very beautifully said. Well, Malay, thank you for expending your energy here no. and, your direction <laughs> and sharing your story with us how can our listeners uh get in touch with you and follow your work yeah no it was my pleasure shireen i'm just so grateful you have this platform and i i can't wait to see how yeah you and your partner continue to like make this space for these conversations but yeah folks can uh, get a hold of me and our and the work at Shift um, on our Instagram. It's at Shifting the Culture or our website, which is www.shiftingculture.co. That's C-O. Um, and yeah, you can contact us there if you want to learn more about all the things I just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.